0: Today, we are thrilled to host Professor Wong Cole, who will read from his new translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, followed by a discussion of, about how the themes in the work relate to current events, including plague, war, economic depression, and civil unrest. Wong Cole is a Richard P. Mitchell College of Professor of History at the University of Michigan. For three and a half decades, he has sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world in historical context. His most recent book is The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, published in 2020. He is also author of Mohammed, The Prophet of Peace, and The Clash of Vampires, The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East, and many other books. I also hope that you will enjoy this poetry reading with our suggested drink for the event, pomegranate Sangria. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Wong Cole. Professor Cole, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Miriam. It's a delight to be here, and uh, thanks everybody who's joining in uh, for coming. Uh, it's um, bittersweet uh, that uh, this book that I have uh, published has come out during the pandemic, and uh, therefore I can't uh, go around to bookstores and give readings and. Uh, have the brie and uh, and crackers and uh, and so forth, but um, uh, since uh, we're uh, doing it virtually, I'll show a copy of the book. It's the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which is a classic of Persian literature and also a classic of English literature in the translation of Edward Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was a um, Well, a gentleman of means in the 19th century uh, who uh, had way too much time on his hands and um, who got interested in spending his time learning languages. He learned Spanish and translated some things from Spanish. Of course, he had Latin and Greek as a British gentleman of the period who had gone to Cambridge. Uh, He was friends with Thackeray and uh, Lord Tennyson. uh, And... um, In the uh, 1850s, he met a young man, I personally think he probably was lovers with the young man, um, who uh, had studied Persian uh, with a captain who came back from India. You know, in that era, uh, Persian for the British didn't primarily signify Iran, although of course it was included, but it uh, it was British India that impelled them to learn Persian. And the British upper crust often knew Persian right up until the 1950s. Uh, um, Anthony Eden, the prime minister uh, who tangled with Abdel Nasser over the Suez Canal, some of his subordinates complained that they he made them read Hafez before they went to bed at night in Persian. Uh, so uh, Fitzgerald uh, uh, and this young man came upon this poem in the Bodleian Library. It was a manuscript, and it was a unique manuscript, uh, dated 1460 of the Common Era, uh, and and written out in Shiraz. And I believe it's the earliest manuscript that uh, collects these quatrains, we would call them in English four-line poems, under the rubric of Omar Khayyam, uh, and Fitzgerald's translation of them, uh, along with that manuscript, he had another that was sent to him from India. Uh, the translation of them went viral. Uh, everybody loved his his uh, translation, and it became one of the most popular and well cited books in the English language uh in 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 the nineteen fifties Bartlett's quotations had more quotations from Fitzgerald's translation than it had from the bible uh and uh it it went everywhere t s Eliot was inspired to write poetry by it mark twain uh was his favorite book uh and uh many british writers fell under its influence uh and um it was popular beyond literary circles, but it was approved of by literary circles. So it was unusual in this regard. Ordinary people would memorize it. Uh, an ambassador to England from the United States uh, observed uh, when he went to the Omar khayyam Society in London that uh, he'd heard cowboys recite in the morning uh, to uh, to make their coffee by the fireside. Uh, so. Uh, then in the in the nineteen seventies, it began. To, Fitzgerald's translation began to fall out of favor. I'm not entirely sure why this happened. It may be that you know there was this move away from dead white men, and um, uh, Omar Khayyam is not exactly a dead white man, but uh, uh, they they had to make way for more diverse literature. Uh, that could be part of it, but for one reason or another. Uh, It stopped being so widely read and I think stopped being assigned in high school, which it always had been up until then. Uh, So I meet younger people who have never heard of it. But if I meet somebody in their 60s, they usually start reciting it to me. Uh, And so there's a big age divide. Well, I'd long been interested in, of course, you know, I was from the 60s and uh, it was something that I encountered. Uh, My generation was very interested in what we called the Orient. Uh, which is now politically incorrect. And um, uh, and I, I went to uh, Tehran uh, uh, in 1976 on a kind of student voyage uh, through the Middle East. And I picked up a copy of uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, this little Persian paperback with this kind of uh, chintzy cover on it that looked like a Bollywood film advertisement. Um, and I worked through it, and uh, I thought it was, it was beautiful and Persian. And also, I thought there were things that uh, Fitzgerald missed, or his eyes slided over maybe, or, or which he just couldn't accept as a mid-19th century Britisher. And uh, so, uh, in recent years, I started working on it. And I was very interested to know where did this poetry come from. I should tell you that at the universities in America and Britain, Uh, this poetry is no longer taught as part of Persian literature, and it's largely because literary specialists uh, discovered that it's just not by the astronomer Omar Khayyam. Omar Khayyam was a great astronomer and a mathematician, and he worked for the Seljuk uh, uh, Empire uh, at Esfahan and then later at Marv. Uh, He was from Nishapur. And um, when I was in high school, at one point they taught us some Geometric algebra, you know, solving algebraic equations by putting them over into geometry, so you can actually see how they work. He invented that. Uh, He's a long Arabic treatise on it. Uh, So, um, uh, however, there's no evidence that he wrote poetry, much less this kind of poetry. And uh, the first assertions that he did so are well after his death. Um Aruzi Nezalmin knew him and uh, wrote a book called uh, Chahar Magale uh, for, for Essays, which has a biography of Khayyam in it from this contemporary no mention of writing poetry. And it's really long after his death, and I would argue mainly in the Mongol period, uh, before the Ilkhanids and after, that uh, this poetry grew up as folk poetry. It's poetry written by many hands. Maybe some of them were elite, some of them were artisans, some of them were probably women, uh, some of them were gay, some of them were straight. Uh, and it's like the Thousand and One Nights in that regard, because you know, the tales in the Thousand and One Nights, some of them are originally from India, they were put into Arabic in Baghdad, some were written in Cairo or, 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 or told in Cairo, in Aleppo. Uh, And uh, a couple of them seem actually to be an edition of 18th century French uh, translators. So um, uh, the the Rubaiyat is like that. Uh, But I think that, you know, seeing it as uh, long-term folk poetry to which poems were constantly added. By the 19th century in Lucknow in India, there was a famous uh, publisher, Nawal Kishore, they brought out an edition of the rubaiyat of omar khayyam with a thousand poems in it uh and this manuscript that uh, they found in the bodleian had 158 so um uh he was very busy after his death uh, omar was he became a genre and the themes of the poetry are um you know in, in some ways very modern uh it's precocious poetry in the sense that some of it is relatively atheistic, uh, says that, you know, heaven and hell are fairy tales for children. Uh, might as well enjoy yourself a little while you're down here, because after that, you know, there's not much going on for the rest of eternity. You'd just be in black earth. Um, and um, uh, it, uh, it's skeptical. Uh, it, uh, it bashes astrology, and bashing astrology may be a way of bashing religion. Uh, it's it's you know dangerous to bash religion in medieval iran but uh as astrology you could could strike out at it as superstition uh and um some of the poetry is is from a- obviously lower class milieu you know these are drunks they used to put the taverns on the edge of town and um uh, and and people would go out there to to drink it would be owned by armenians or zoroastrians uh, there would be r- ruined buildings around they called them kharabat or or you know ruins uh, basically the, the taverns uh, and uh, relatively low class people would hang out there khayyam the real khayyam you know got 10000 dinars a year as a as a court astronomer and i don't think he probably was pawning his winter coat the way this poetry talks about uh, so um, uh, it's wonderful for a social historian, because kind of in the social history of ideas, it sometimes gives you a sense of the ethos of maybe the artisan class or the working class. And because it's by many different hands, it's full of contradictions. Some of it is very skeptical and most atheistic, some of it is kind of Sufi, uh, and it goes back and forth. And it, it's something when, when Fitzgerald's translation became really popular, Uh, Charles Eliot Norton and and other um, uh, great uh, literateurs wondered, you know, why is it, does it have this dichotomy like this? And uh, there were all kinds of theories, was Hayam a Sufi or he wasn't a Sufi? And uh, uh, I I think it was um, for a lot of thinkers in Europe and, and the United States The poetry was uh, adopted as a means of self-secularization. It it became popular among champions of Darwin, for instance, uh, who would quote it. Uh, And I think the fact that they thought it was by a a medieval scientist, you know, gave it that cachet. So um, I wanted to translate it into contemporary American English or or, uh, uh, contemporary English in any case. Uh, Because I think that the Fitzgerald translation by now has a lot of Victorian archaicisms. It's maybe a little difficult for uh, contemporaries. Let me just read a a few uh, examples uh, of of my rendering. (coughs) We won't say what's in that cup. (coughs) Um, Too bad if your heart isn't scorched. If there is no one you're pining for who makes it leap. That day on which love does not ache in you is the most wasted day of your whole life. So that's a very typical kind of Hayami poem. Uh, and it's it's arguing against uh, a kind of very sober Puritan uh, self-restraint. Uh, it's, it's saying, follow your heart. Uh, there are some emotions, some passions in life that you just have to go for. And you'll regret if you don't, because again, uh, all that's left is, is Black Earth afterwards. Here's one uh, a, a bashing astrology. Don't blame the stars for virtues or for faults, or for the joy and grief decreed by fate. For science holds the planets all to be a thousand times more helpless than are we. So um, in this poem, uh, The persona of the astronomer comes through, you know, that's what Klaam was supposed to be and and we know Mathematically exactly Where Mars is going to be next year at precisely this time. We could do it down to the second Um, But we don't have any idea where any of the people in this uh, uh, In this group is going to be next year this time human beings are the most complex things in the universe and the poetry acknowledges this. By the way, Fitzgerald didn't translate it that way. That the stars are a thousand tor- times more helpless than we are. He translated they're just as helpless as we are. So he made it into a kind of um, Oriental fatalism, where you know everything in the world is just, is just fated to a certain uh, degree. But that's not what Chayam or not not what the poetry says. It, it says that human beings have infinitely more freedom of choice than uh, natural uh, objects and therefore ought to exercise it uh, and not be superstitious about it. So I'll end with this one, uh, which is, again, I think it's um, from a a lower class milieu and it's crass. Some of the poetry is. It's one of the problems with Fitzgerald's translation is they all sound like Shakespeare there. Uh, But this poem says, signs of the zodiac. You give something to every jackass. Random fancy baths, millworks, canals, while noble souls must gamble in hopes of winning their nightly bread. Who would give a fart for such a constellation? (laughs) So that's obviously, uh, from a poor person's point of view, uh, saying that if it is in fact the case that the stars are governing the universe... Well, they're not doing a very good job uh, at being just about it, at least. Uh, so uh, I'll stop there. And uh, and I think what Miriam and I will have a little conversation before we open it up.
0: Yes, thank you so much for the introduction, Professor Cole. And yes, we are now moving on to the fireside portion of the event. So we do have questions for Juan Cole, drafted by NYX Chicago members, as well as questions from the RSVPs that the audience has already submitted. Um, so now I'm going to be asking question number one, uh, what are, so you, you somewhat answered what inspired you to undertake a new translation of the Robiot, um, thank you so much, but is there anything else you wanted to add to that, what inspired you to undertake this new translation?
1: Well, aside from my childhood love of it and, or or at least young adult love of it, and, um, you know, I, uh, one of my fields for my degree uh, at UCLA uh, was, was in Persian literature. I, I studied uh, with um, Amin ben Ani and uh, I did, uh, we did Rumi, we did a lot of the Persian classics. Uh, so it's, it's an interest of mine. Um, but I suppose a number of things happened. One was that the Bodleian Manuscript was published in facsimile in 1898. So it had been around, but it was a little rare, you know, to publish a Persian manuscript. In facsimile at that time was expensive, and I think it was a subscription. So I don't know how many copies there were, 103 or something. Uh, but uh, Google scanned it uh, when they did Google Books uh, and put it up. And so I found it, and uh, I, that was part of what started me off working on it, was it was just accessible. Uh, and then a number of other nineteenth-century uh, publications of uh, of poetry attributed to Chayam also became available. So that was that was part of it. Part of it was this um, puzzle of where it came from that I was interested in trying to resolve, uh, and uh, which in the end I think I got a pretty good handle on. Part of it was the rise of Iranophobia and Islamophobia, you know, as a uh, um, somebody who really fell in love with Persian and Iran uh, back in the 70s as a young person, uh, it hurt my heart uh, to see uh, Iran and Persian uh, vilified and uh, turned demonized uh, increasingly in American culture. And um, uh, it seemed to me uh, uh, important to remind people that just as the Japanese haiku had an enormous influence on uh, on English letters uh, through the 20th century, so did the Persian quatrain. So uh, the famous Robert Frost poem, uh, Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Night, uh, is an imitation of Fitzgerald's translation. It has exactly the uh, rhyme scheme of a classical, a Persian quatrain, a Persian rabbi. Uh, and um, its themes, uh, because the protagonist in that poem is caught between uh, a, a frozen lake and, and, a, and a snowstorm in the woods, also is very bleak and and resembles some of the Khayami poetry. So, uh, whereas everybody knows how important the haiku is, and most people try to write uh, a few haiku uh, Japanese-style, sometime in their uh, lives, maybe in school. Uh, the, the, the Persian quatrain, which uh, I think was at least as influential, has fallen out of, of, of favor. And, and knowledge of it has been lost. Uh, but also, uh, because of the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran and the Islamic Republic, Iran has been tagged as religious fanatics. Uh, and, uh, uh, we all know this is simply not true. Uh, and, uh, I I thought the poetry, if we could bring it again to, to, to a contemporary audience, uh, with its, uh, emphasis on skepticism, uh, and, uh, it's, um, sometimes outré, uh, kinds of recommendations, uh, that, uh, maybe maybe in a small way here and there, it might help to uh, fight that uh, iranophobia.
0: Well, thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the next question. Um, what are some of the most surprising references to poetry attributed to Khayyam in the Western popular culture? In the introduction to the book, you mentioned Conan the Barbarian and the Grateful Dead. What are your favorites?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, um, Fitzgerald's translation, as I said, gradually went viral. He self-published it. So for all those of you who have a novel, you know, you're putting up at Amazon or something, take heart. Uh, One of the greatest uh, poems in the English language uh, was self-published. But it was discovered by the pre-Raphaelites, by the circle of a little bit odd uh, of poets and uh, artists uh, in uh, London of the time. Uh, who had this theory that uh, everything since the Renaissance was artificial. And if you wanted real art, you went back to the raw, the unsophisticated medieval period. So for them, this poetry is medieval. So it's pre-Renaissance. And they looked at it that way rather than considering it so much as, uh, as Iranian. Uh, and uh, so uh, they went wild with it and it influenced their poetry. Uh, So, um, uh, uh, the pre-Raphaelites are are some of the poets that I like that were influenced by it. Uh, But also, um, one of them was William Morris. Morris was an early British socialist. Uh, He also played a role in popularizing the Norse legends. Uh, And he was one of the people who invented high fantasy. Uh, so, if you liked Game of Thrones and uh, and tolkien's movies, uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings, Morris was one of the people who developed that genre, and I think that the Persian poetry and its exotic character and so forth was influential on Morris. He did four manuscripts uh, calligraphed British style with designed floral patterns and things on the outside of. Fitzgerald's translation uh one of which he gave to the wife of a friend of his who I think he was having an affair with so um Morris is an example um Elliot uh there's it's been argued that that T.S. Eliot's work is, is suffused with themes from the Rubayat. uh and um as I said Mark Twain uh tried to write some poetry in imitation of it his isn't very good uh but um uh, yeah, and then Conan. Well, uh, the, the, Robert E. Howard loved the poetry, and when he invented the world of Conan, he was influenced by it. And people nowadays, I think because of the Schwarzenegger movie and so forth, think about Conan as, uh, as an, uh, a brute, but he's, in the books he's not. He's, uh, he he's, knows lots of languages. And by the way, he's a Sumerian, uh, which was an ancient Iranian people. Uh, so if you didn't know that Conan the Barbarian is Iranian, uh, there you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that then uh, we're going to go on to the third question. Um, what was your process of translation? What are your objectives of this news translation? How do you stake your translation's position in the field today, especially with popular renditions of Rumi poems by Ladinsky and Barks, which aren't really translations?
2: Right.
1: Well, I'm an academic, and as I said, you know, trained in Persian literature, and so I I didn't want to depart from the poetry very far. Uh, I didn't want to do a literal translation because, by the way, that that was done a lot by scholars in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, not only into English but German and French and so forth. Fairly literal renderings were done, so I didn't see the point of doing that. Uh, I wanted to do it as poetry, and um, uh since my undergraduate days i've written poetry i got a prize as an undergraduate for my poetry uh so rather than do what the barks team did is to take uh a literal translation by someone who knows persian and give it to a poet um i combined the two in myself i knew the persian i I could read it i knew it literally Uh, but i also wanted to figure out how you would say that uh, in today's english so, again, uh, I wanted to, to have a contemporary feel. So, I avoided all of those tropes of, um, of Persian medieval translation. There's no wenches, no sakis, no, uh, no taverns in my book. I, I, uh, I had big arguments with my editor because I wanted just to call it a bar where they were, uh, because as, as far as I can tell in English, that's in Australia, United States, Britain, that's what they call them nowadays. Uh, but my my editor didn't like that uh It was too uh jarring for him so uh I use various uh terms for for the place that they 're drinking uh, uh but um I, I did want to get away from those archaicisms and to make it contemporary then i also uh, didn't want to do what Fitzgerald did he he did them all in, in iambic pentameter uh and uh, Critics that is kind of boring after a while, uh on the other hand, some of them I just heard it that way, and they fell into it so the ones that are iambic pentameter or sometimes I use other foot lengths maybe sextameter or, or, uh, or whatever uh, I put those and justified on the left uh so there' are four four lines and you can see that they're uh, justified and and those are the ones that have a, a a meter no rhyme i i tried i didn't put in rhyme. Uh, and, uh, but then others I did more or less as free verse. And again, my editor was uncomfortable with that, and so made me put the free verse into four lines. So at least it was still a quatrain. Um, and those, uh, it just seemed to me that you, capt- you can capture the liberated spirit of some of those poems better with free verse and letting them splash across the page than you can by uh, putting them in a, in a straitjacket. And I, I avoided rhyme on the whole, unless it just fell naturally, uh, because it makes you get away from the meaning of the original. It, it, r- meter and rhyme translation from another language, after a while, doesn't sound very much like the original. Uh, so I, I thought I, I, I would privilege, as far as I could, what I took to be the meaning of the original and bring it over into a uh, free verse or, or a, a blank verse in English.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: wonderful thank you so much well i'm going to move on to the emotional aspects of the poem so many of the poems I, I i read ask us to fully embrace our emotions and live in the moment and however it seems that other poems tell us to somewhat drown our way, away our sorrows with wine and accept that this world isn't real for example on page 25 poem number 20 says quote, bring me a drink since I'm going to blow out the sorrows of the world with wine. Poem number 94, page 49, also says, quote, this world's not real, it's just a simile, why be disturbed by all this pain and need? Accept your destiny, the moving pen has written, and it won't revise it for you, unquote. So with the pandemic and George Floyd, I've certainly found myself shutting down with all that's going on. How do we solve this contradiction in our current moment?
1: Right. Well, uh, the poetry, again, as I said, is from many hands, I think. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, that helps to explain the differences in the values from one poem to another. So it's an anthology, uh, but it does have some rules as an anthology. And uh, uh, I think, you know, I know for a fact there was a principle of uh, medieval Arabic and Persian literature Uh, when you made an anthology uh, was that one of the purposes of it was uh, not to let people get bored. So you would pick out a poem that said one thing here, and another poem uh, uh, from a different poem that that said the opposite here, and you would put them all together uh, to keep the reader guessing and to keep the reader interested and uh, on their toes. So I think this uh, collection of, of quatrains, uh, some of which we know from manuscripts uh, before 1460, uh, uh, is of that character. But yes, uh, the poetry, uh, you know, does kind of resemble our time some, in some ways. You know, the, uh, I think, as I said, it grew up primarily in the Mongol period, in the Ilkhanid period. Uh, When the Mongols uh, uh, took Iran, uh, and there was a great deal of devastation. I don't want to be hard on pastoralists, you know, because tribal people get a bad name and so forth. But mm, the Mongol invasion was very hard on cities. Uh, And there were a few like Tabriz that just surrendered and uh, were all right. But others, people had to run away from and in fact, the great historian, Joe Vaini, who wrote in the, that period, he was a, a, a Mongol official, an Ilkhanid official. Uh, he wrote a history of, of the Mongols. Uh, he saw a village being destroyed by them. Uh, and uh, he was obviously very conflicted as an Iranian working for a government that was destroying Iranian villages. Uh, and at, at that point, he quotes one of the Hayami poems and he, he, he attributes it to Omar Khayyam uh so people did use the poetry for these moments of devastation uh and um uh and and uh, just of uh, uh historically speaking uh it's worth noting maybe that there have been some historians like william Mcneil at Chicago who argued that uh the the black death the plague came uh west with the mongols invasions that that uh, that they didn't mean to but inadvertently they brought it with them uh other other historians have argued that it it came on on sea but um uh in any case uh iran also did get hit by it uh, when some of this poetry was being composed uh so the poetry is suffused with this uh sense that life is fleeting uh and uh Uh, I mean, I summarize it by saying that uh, um, because life is fleeting and because the meaning of life isn't clear, if indeed there is a meaning, uh, therefore, you shouldn't be too Puritan. Uh, You should enjoy yourself a little in life. Uh, On the other hand, the poetry is careful to say, you know, uh, don't be mean to people. Don't betray people. Don't, uh, you know... uh, have a a sense of warmth and humanity towards others while you're enjoying yourself. So I think it sometimes was misunderstood uh, in Fitzgerald's translation as libertine, as just saying, well, you know, uh, everybody else can go to hell, I've got mine, I'm just gonna enjoy myself. Not what the poetry says. It it says, sure, enjoy
2: yourself, but don't be mean to other people. Mm -hmm.
0: Wonderful. Well, this brings us to the next question. Um, Poem number 65, page 40, can be read as an instance of oppression and what goes around comes around uh, about leadership and unruly kings. Uh, Quote, settle down, you two are in for being trumped on, just like me. No pun intended. Okay, maybe it was. Um, Poem number 69, page 41, says, quote, my king, the stars appointed you to rule and dressed for you the comparison steed of empire. Your golden-hoofed stallion charged ahead and gilded with its sparks the battle plane. So how would the authors of, this po- of the poem critique the reckless leadership we are living under today in the U.S. and around the world?
1: Well, I, I think we've already heard uh, uh, what uh, some of these poets thought about uh, uh, the injustice of the world. and. Uh, the way in which people thought that it's foreordained and there's nothing you can do about it, uh, and and there's a lot of that kind of sentiment in the poem, in in, in the uh, in the poetry. Uh, there's a um, a clear, you know, undercurrent uh, of class uh, critique of of uh, of poor people uh, being mistreated and uh, uh, of the wealthy uh, being selfish. Uh, in this poetry, it's one of the reasons I think it doesn't come from the saljuk court <laughs> in this one, uh, but um, uh, I think the, the contradiction here is, is only is illusory because uh, the poet, th- this particular collection of the poetry was made uh, by a man we know nothing about, uh, named Mahmouda Yerbudaki. Mm-hmm. He, he was obviously a Turkman. And he was uh, a courtier of a prince of the uh, Black Sheep Dynasty, the qaraqoyunlu Uh There's not an, a whole book in English about this uh, dynasty in Iran. Um, any, any of you who are um, budding medieval historians looking for a PhD topic, it, it deserves to be written. But um, they were nomads, uh, and uh, they came from... Uh, you know the steppes of Central Asia, as Turkmen, uh, they they converted to Islam, probably a kind of folk Shiism, uh, but they weren't um, uh, sort of Sharia Muslims. They weren't uh, urban Muslims that were attentive to the minutiae of uh, of what they thought of as Islamic law, uh, and uh, the. the, the the, the there was a prince of the dynasty who rebelled against his father, and used horrible language for his father, mm-hmm. um, kind of a Tiffany Trump uh, figure, uh, who, uh, uh, who who rebelled and established a statelet uh, in Shiraz. So when I first read the bodley manuscript, I was very puzzled because at the end of it it says it was written, you know, in such and such year by Mir Budaqi in the capital. Shiraz. Well, I know a fair amount about Iranian history, but I thought to myself, well, what was Shiraz the capital of? So I looked into it and discovered that there was a ruler, Pir Budak, who had rebelled against his father and made the statelet uh, in that period. So this poetry was collected and probably was recited at Pir Budak's court. And the chronicles say that he liked a good time. Uh, that his court parties were full of wine and and uh, unveiled women and dancing and and music and uh, you know horrible things from a Sharia-minded point of view, uh, and uh, so the poetry that was chosen out, uh, I think, has some fun with uh, the the Puritan urban notables, uh, the the uh, the kinds of people who uh, disapproved of drinking wine and. Uh, were very attentive to law, uh, but who also maybe were cold-hearted towards uh, the common people. And I think the Turkmen dynasties had this kind of uh, interesting aspect that they were rulers, but they came from what would be considered the lower classes because urban people looked down on them. So maybe that made a space for them to appreciate this poetry that uh, that critiqued the uh, upper classes.
0: Wonderful. This brings us to our next question. Um, As you've mentioned, many of the poems were written during plague and war. Uh, I can't help but think with similar things happening right now with coronavirus, we're all in quarantine. At the beginning of 2020, the U.S. almost went to war with Iran and we're stuck in endless wars in the Middle East. So which of the newly translated poems speak to the moment we are in right now?
1: Oh, well, I think that you have to take them as a whole in that regard. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I wrote an essay for Tom Dispatch uh, uh, about a month ago, which went viral, uh, in which I pointed out uh, that this poetry um, is, is brutal about uh, religious hypocrisy. Uh, as, uh, one of the poems says that, you know, I, I went to the mosque, but I didn't have prayer in mind. I, I, uh, my, my rug at home had worn out, so I came back with one of the prayer rugs. Uh, so the reason for going to the mosque had nothing to do with piety. You just needed a new rug, so he stole one from the mosque. Um, and that's a very typical kind of medieval Iranian humor. Uh, but it also speaks to the hypocrisy uh, of religious people. And, you know, we're in a moment now where uh, um, the themes of the poetry uh, of superstition versus science, which is a theme uh that comes across uh is being pitched again because uh, you have um, do- uh, dozens now of, of fundamentalist pastors have have died because they refused to stop holding church services during the pandemic, and they were absolutely convinced uh, that uh, uh that God would protect them in their congregations and sadly this was not the case um and uh uh so i i think you know the resistance to science that uh, dr fauci recently talked about is something that's critiqued in some of these poems uh and uh one of the ones that i read where it's do not be blaming your your fate or your your, your destiny on on the stars it's, it's it's you who make your destiny uh in the same way you can't be um Refusing to wear a mask and killing your grandmother uh, on the grounds that uh, you're you're enveloped by God's grace. Uh, so I think that uh, that that kind of poetry uh, hits our moment.
0: Yeah, um, that's so true. Um, unfortunately, people just still continue to ignore science, which is so unfortunate um, and angry, and it makes me angry. Um, which. I mean, also brings us somewhat to the next question. Um, This is more about economic inequality. Uh, So poem number 90, page 48, speaks to leaders and citizens about the importance of poor people in our society. Quote, flat all traditions and forget the law, but don't deprive the poor of your small gifts, unquote. Poem number 118, page 57 um, from your book, from your translated, newly translated book seems to speak from the perspective of someone who has cast away high office in exchange for poverty. Quote, I've cast away high office and it's pomp. I've purchased poverty with my very life and soul. Unquote. Do you think that this fits with Chayam's life? I mean this might be a chance to talk about the fact that maybe, like as you said, uh, you argue that Khayam did actually did not write the poetry attributed to him.
1: Yeah, well this kind of sentiment is, is uh, again, it's not, wouldn't have been typical of the uh, Seljuk court. Uh, but those sentiments uh, are not only in this poetry but are widespread in uh, medieval Persian poetry. And the great scholar uh, Hamida Dabal, she has talked about um, a kind of Persian humanism. But, uh, you know, the, the Khayami poetry is saying, uh, be a human being, uh, you know, be nice to people, uh, uh, take care of the poor. Uh, and uh, even if that means you're not uh, maybe strictly following religious law, that, that human beings are more important than religious law, And uh, that's it's something that uh, Hafez says and uh, Saadi, and uh, it's a widespread sentiment uh, in the poetry, uh, which Davoshi has called a kind of Persian humanism. uh, That there there are other things in life uh, than than teasing out uh, the minutiae of law. Uh, So the the poetry certainly reflects this uh, this point of view of putting the human first, uh, and and therefore. Caring about what happens to the poorest in society and maybe even declining to join in with a corrupt establishment uh, turning turning down wealth and and power uh, if it would mean uh, Compromising that key principle of caring about human beings first Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, very true, um This brings me to my last question, the last question of the fireside portion um, of the event. So I think that poem number 56, page 37, speaks of larger systematic oppression and how the oppressed nonetheless fight on despite the dangers. Quote, those whose deeds grow out of their hypocrisy want to separate body from soul. I'll carry on my crown a jug of wine, even if they threaten to lop off my head, unquote. So when I was reading this particular poem, the image of the Minneapolis police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck immediately came to mind and how that uh, represents systematic oppression. What are your thoughts on how this poem is relevant to this moment in our contemporary politics?
1: Well, yes, uh, again, uh, the, the poetry really insists on uh, not mistreating people as the, as, as the highest value. Uh, and, uh, um uh, it, it, it's all right to break regulations uh uh but uh, but it's not all right uh to to uh to be mean to people or or to harm them uh and uh so I, I think uh that's something that in our society today we really have to give some thought to because a lot of people are in their lives are being harmed uh for the sake of regulations basically uh and some of them well, in my generation, you know, this is coming to an end. I hope now, but in my generation, so many lives were blighted, you know, because people smoked marijuana. Uh, I mean, really, five percent of the prison population was in for that. Uh, and uh, imagine that the the millions and maybe billions of dollars that were spent to keep people incarcerated uh and for what uh, you know it it was uh it was partially a a racist program because you know the white drugs were not punished in that way uh on the whole uh but um uh the, the, this poetry really is a, a cri de coeur it's a, a cry from the heart uh against uh that kind of thing of 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 punishing victimless crimes um uh, and so when it it says drink wine," and it says that quite a lot uh uh, I, I think it's a symbol, the wine is being used as a symbol of something that doesn't really harm people, but which that society had outlawed. And, you know, uh, uh, a lot of Muslim jurists refuse to punish people for drinking wine because there's no punishment in this, mentioned in the Quran. Quran discourages wine, it frowns on it, but it doesn't give a punishment for it. And in legal theory, if something is, doesn't have a punishment attached to it, it's not really a crime. Uh, so I think the poetry is using wine in that sense of something that society frowns on, uh, but isn't really a crime. And uh, it's encouraging people not to pay attention to silly regulations. I, d- I don't think it, it means that uh, the poetry doesn't mean to encourage people to be falling down drunk all the time, although s- some of it might. But um, uh, on the whole, and by and large, what, it, what it's saying is be prepared to defy convention in order to be a rounded human being.
0: Wow. So I'm going to take a question uh, from Amin. So we have Amin, he asked a question about the transcript. So his question is which transcript is Professor's translation based on?
1: Yeah. Well, as I said, uh, it, uh, I, it's in the book, uh, the, 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 the notation. I used uh, the Bodleian manuscript uh, of uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam uh, that was uh, written, uh, was uh, edited in, in 1460 in Shiraz. Uh, this is in the British, uh, in, at Oxford, uh, in their special collections. It's a very interesting story, because uh, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, Uh, The French and the British both were trying to get uh, the Qajar uh, Empire on on their side. And so they sent embassies. Napoleon sent an embassy. Uh, And the British sent an embassy. So in in 1810, it was the first modern British embassy in Iran. I know a lot of Iranians think that British embassies in Tehran have caused a lot of trouble. But uh, this was the first one. And uh, uh, it was the ambassadorial staff who collected this manuscript, and it was a very old manuscript from 1460, and it ended up there in Oxford, and then it was catalogued by uh, uh, Edward Fitzgerald's friend, and the friend brought it over, and they went through it together, uh, and were kind of, being Victorian gentlemen, uh, shocked and amazed at what was in this poetry. Uh so that was the one that I used and I used it because I think that's the first uh the first collection of this poetry that uh is under the rubric of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. These some of the quatrains in the in the in the collection existed beforehand. We have them in Mongol uh collections of poetry. But they're not for the most part attributed to Khayyam. In, in, in earlier iterations, either they're attributed to some other poet, uh, um, uh, Masati Ganjavi, a woman poet uh, of the of the Seljuk era. Uh, some of this poetry was attributed to her, uh, or they were attributed to Ibn Sina, uh, which is just as unlikely <laughs> as that. Avicenna was a great Aristotelian philosopher. I don't think he probably was. Uh, uh, stumbling drunk in uh, in the Kharabad in the in the taverns. Um, so what Gerbudek Budaki did the genius that he had was he took this poetry that had uh, been published here and there under either as anonymous uh, and often they just said I don't know who wrote this uh, La'arif and uh, uh, uh or uh, or it had been attributed to somebody else, and he just collected them and he said Oh this is by Omar Khayyam. Uh, and then I think they read them out at Pierre Boudac's par- wine parties. Uh, so that was the one that I used. And I compared it uh, a little bit to the, uh, you know, the Mort d'Arthur, the, the Arthur legends uh, 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 in English uh, were uh, collected from the French and, uh, and, and published, in, uh, again, beginning in the 1460s. Uh, so it was a similar kind of moment.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now we're going to, I'm calling on Nari to appear. He wants to
2: ask his question. But Professor Cole, hello from Chicago, and thank you for accepting our invitation to come. Good to see you again, at least virtually, if not uh, in one of the nightclubs, jazz clubs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, we would uh, would love to see you at, the, at some point again uh, doing, doing that experience. One of the value-added uh, experiences of this afternoon has been uh, how knowledgeable you are about the literary uh, relation, uh, about the amorous relationship between these literary figures as to who was with whom or whatever without getting too graphics about it. Um, I, I'm wondering if we could expect a book from you in the future that will map out some of these relationships, amorous relationships, and what works they might have inspired more interestingly. Uh, that would be an interesting uh, contribution uh, as to expect as a future book from you
1: well I, I do hope thanks, it's great to see you and and thanks for having me um i i uh, I have been working on uh a book about the impact of the rabbiya uh, on english letters uh and oh, wow. it, it does go into uh some of these relationships uh uh that uh, the poetry centered on because you know the the um the The poetry uh, was received in many ways. Some people saw it as a a support for secularism and, you know, Darwinism. Uh, Some people saw it as romantic poetry. And the common person often took it that way because of the famous uh, verse about... uh, uh, that, that that Fitzgerald had translated about sitting under the bough and with wine and, and a book of, of verse. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, it was very common. I've gone back and, and read the old newspapers uh, from the from the teens. And it was very common for suitors If they if they'd invited a, a, a girl on a, a date, they, they would show up at her door with this uh, a book under their, their arm and, uh, in hopes of uh, maybe reading some of it to her to get her in the mood. Uh, so, uh, it, it, it did, you know, uh, it has a history, uh, it has a, uh, place in the history of, of Western sentiment, uh, and, uh, romance. And, uh, um, I think we forget often how Puritan, uh, American and British culture was, uh, earlier on. Uh, but, um, some parts of the, of the society really responded to these things. So in 1905, uh, you know, Mardi Gras in, in New Orleans, had had a theme every year, so they made the theme the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and uh, so they had you know the women in harem pants and the big jugs of wine, and uh, it was all Khayyam themed. Uh, uh, the the floats uh, that the Indians made and so forth. Uh, it was, uh, and um, uh, I found you know the original uh, newspaper clippings where they 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 did paintings of those uh, or watercolors of those uh, floats. Uh, So, here is 1905 America, you couldn't get further away from Iran than that, Uh, it was still the Qajar period, we were on the verge of the Constitutional Revolution, but Americans were taking something, you know, however distorted it might have been in its lens through uh, Fitzgerald and so forth, they were taking something from uh, Iranian ideas about, uh, uh, about the good life.
2: Thank you very much, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Well, we'll move on to the next question from the audience. This is from Abe. Um, I'm quoting him. He says, Salam, thanks for organizing and bringing this great talk to us. Is there any any order to his poems? Could the contradictory nature of some of his poems be indicative of a change in his mindset over the years? Thank you, Dr. Cole, for your interest and support of cross-cultural understanding, unquote.
1: Well, thank you. the poetry uh, in the Yer Buda Ki manuscript is arranged alphabetically uh, It's in the abjadi system uh, by first letter so n- no, there's no progression to it uh it's uh, it's it's arbitrary, but I think that's what Yer Buda Ki wanted he he wanted the the anthology to shift around from theme to theme uh, so that people wouldn't get bored um, and i I think uh, in the original manuscript the, the very first poem was kind of pious and i think they put that one there as a cover uh in case you know somebody picked it up who was uh, narrow-minded and, and saw the first poem would think well there's nothing wrong with this book and and go on uh, but then when you get deeper into it you, f- you find the more uh, um titillating uh poems uh so um no, I, I don't think the poetry uh, can be traced to an author, to a single author. A- and this was something that really puzzled uh, late 19th and early 20th century scholars of Persian uh, literature, that how could it be that the same poem was attributed to four or five different poems and uh, that it existed in various manuscripts and and, uh, and then it all ended up being attributed to Khayyam. Uh, so... In literary studies, we we, uh, we have the concept of the frame author. It's an author uh, to, wit, to to whom something is attributed. So like all of the Thousand and One Nights tales are attributed to Scheherazade, right? She was in danger of having her head cut off if she didn't keep uh, her husband, the king, uh, entertained with these cliffhangers. And she wouldn't tell him how the story ended unless he lived, let her live another day. So you have a a, a story from from Cairo in, you know, 1250, and you have another story from Aleppo in 1744. They're all said to be the work of Scheherazade, so she's a frame author, she's she's the the author that kind of organizes this anthology. So I think they they picked up Khayyam because he was a skeptical scientist uh, as the frame author for this kind of poetry.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. This brings us also to Shadi's question. Shadi, you're up.
3: Thank you so much. Uh, This was very exciting, very, very informative. Uh, So um, in terms of uh, you portraying it and the way I always read Khayyam as a skeptic, how do we interpret this him being a skeptic in relation to his Muslim beliefs? As in my mind, Khayyam is the first existentialist ever. Uh, that and how did this, I always want to know how I can figure about Khayyam philosopher, philosophy and his influence in Iranian philosophy and in, in Iranian philosophical mindset. Mm-hmm. And thank you.
1: You're welcome. Okay. Well, uh, Shadi, those are excellent points, and I think you're a- absolutely right oh, that uh, um, yeah. th- in the Hayami poetry, there is a kind of existentialism avant la lettre. It's, it's before the word existed. But just as people have argued that it, it's, uh, it's there in Shakespeare as well. Um, and uh, I think that the, the poetry has that corner to it of an existentialist kind of despair about meaning uh maybe finding meaning in the transcendence of everyday life uh Mm -hmm. the things that we have a tendency to think of high and low when we come to meaning so there's the heavenly choir and the, the the high virtues and then there's you know going to a party with friends and maybe getting a little tipsy well this poetry breaks down that dichotomy it says that you can find transcendence with your friends, getting a little tipsy, uh, or you can find transcendence with a lover. Uh, and so th- uh, there is a this kind of existentialist sense to it. Some of the poetry in it, though, is just ordinary, pious poetry. Uh, and uh, that's why I think it's an anthology by different people. Some of the sensibilities are more Sufi. Some of them are more secular. Uh, but even the Sufi, you know, corner to the poetry uh is a little bit existentialist so there's a poem that says that you know the, the seeker s- started looking for uh the kalam the the, the pen uh, uh that god wrote the, the universe out with and the tablet on which it wrote uh uh in the sky above uh, but then his master told him no those things are inside you uh so That's a a very common Sufi trope, but it also fits in with the skeptical side of the poetry that it's a critique of conventional, a kind of literalist religion.
3: And how much, based on your religious, your your historical uh, reading, this has affected Iranian uh, philosophical mindset in general? Well, I I
1: think it has been important because uh, certainly uh, whatever we academics now think, um, most Iranian uh, thinkers of the last two centuries have thought the poetry was by the astronomer Khayyam, uh, and uh, uh, so, for instance, Sadegh uh, uh collected some of this poetry, um, and uh, he was an existentialist, of course,
2: uh,
1: and very directly so because he was influenced by French thought, uh, and I think. Um, uh, there's also kind of some Buddhist sentiment in the poetry and it was because it's from the Ilkhanid period when there was Buddhism in Iran that, you know, life is fleeting and and so forth uh, and and Ayyad also was attracted uh, uh, by Buddhism um, you know, the Khorasanis used to be Buddhist so it was part of his Iranian nationalism to you know, recuperate uh, Iranian Buddhism from, from the Arab uh, Muslims uh, so yeah, I think in the same way that uh, very secular writers like Thomas Hardy, who was a, a, a novelist, uh, uh, wrote Jude the Obscure, uh, uh, and was a big Darwinist and uh, who didn't believe in religion, some of the modern Iranian writers who had those tendencies, like Hedayat, Yat, also kind of grounded themselves, you know, indigenously in, in the Rubaiyat. Thank you so
3: much. Thank you. Um,
0: this brings us to our next, next question um, from El Niram. Uh, quote Do you see Omar Khayyam, his scientific aspect of personality in his poems, evidence of the science versus religion mindset of his? Unquote.
1: Yes, I, I think that uh, it's one of the themes of this genre of poetry, and I'm arguing it's a genre. So uh, uh, I could have chosen a different collection of the poetry, but it would have had very similar themes. One of the themes is uh, a fight, not so much between religion and science, uh, uh, because religion is a big phenomenon, but, but between uh, science and um, what the poetry, I think, would, would see as narrow-minded religion. Uh, religion... Uh, that uh, w- is willing to set aside reason uh, in the interests of uh, dogma and uh, uh, and again the minutiae of, of law. I have to tell you, I was shocked when I, I, I read this poem that said, "Sonat matkon, matkon. Uh, don't don't pay any attention to the sunnah. Don't the sunnah is really important in Islam, uh, and uh, but it it it, uh, it it says don't do it." Rather, you know, be nice to people, take care of people, uh, do favors for people. So, um, I think uh, uh, the the critique of astrology is part of this. And as I said, I think the critique of astrology is, uh, in a way, uh, a Trojan horse. It's a way of critiquing superstition in religion without getting into trouble. And it's something that to keep in mind is that the time that this poetry was being produced. A lot of these sentiments were dangerous. I mean, people could get in trouble; they could uh, be, be punished by the uh, by the clergy or the, the king for saying these things. I mean, There's another reason that they were attributed to Omar Khayyam. Because if if you wrote a poem uh, critiquing the ulama and um, it went out under your name, uh, then you know if it could come back on you. But if you said, "Look, well, I found this nice old poem by Omar Khayyam. Let's see what it says." then people won't take it so seriously as you have given it to a frame author and then maybe you also won't go to jail.
0: Great. So we're going to be calling on Nadir. Nadir, you're up.
4: Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for this very um, exciting and very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, I have a—I'm not an expert in Persian literature, even though I was—I am Iranian, and I think you know probably much more about Persian literature than most of us on the, on this call. I have a little uh, Khayyam um, book next to my bed, and evening and every evening I try to maybe read a few pages and a few uh, or at least try to memorize some of them. And the Persian that I read is almost the same Persian as we speak today. Uh, I was I was uh, kind of in, in, intrigued by by what you said that you know you set out to write a a new translation of Hayam because Fitzgerald's uh, you know English was kind of very arcane and no longer people couldn't really understand it very much. But you know, reading Persian poetry, be it Rumi, be it you know, be it. Uh, Khayyam, and even Sferdousi, and the Persian is very, um, very, uh, I I mean, it's as if it is today's Persian. But when you read Persian prose, that's not the case. Persian prose is very difficult to read for people like myself who are not, you know, um, trained in that. Um, What do you attribute this to that we have kind of, in a way, kept the poetic language, or we are, you know, the poetic language continues to be uh, very, um, you know, uh, today's uh, Persian, but not the, the written language, and why has Persian not changed so much as, for instance, other languages have changed? Thank you so much. Well,
1: yes. you're very welcome. It's an excellent point, point. Uh, and in fact, um, in the uh, Ilkhanid period, uh, literary people noticed that uh, rubayad, or quatrains, were, were, were very popular among the people, uh, because they often used this relatively simple language. Uh, and uh, it's a language that, as you say, is still accessible today. That's why I thought, you know, uh, Fitzgerald's tendency to bring in Shakespearean diction or a very high uh, diction was in some ways a betrayal of the poetry because it, it's not. It's, it's, it's everyday speech of its time. Why language is... Uh, change is uh, an important issue in history. Uh, A lot of it has changes. And so, you know, the old uh, uh, Pahlavi language, uh, Middle Persian, uh, developed into what is called New Persian uh, after the Arab invasions uh, and uh, Arabic words were imported. uh, And, uh, you know, when you have a conqueror who speaks a different language than the local people, they have to find ways of communicating, uh, even of trading. So uh, uh, each will maybe cut off some of the more difficult grammar. Uh, So English uh, simplified out. It used to be like German. It had a dative and uh, it was very difficult uh, grammatically, but it simplified out when the French Normans conquered it and, uh, uh, i think the same thing happened uh, with, with uh, hindi and uh and and uh, uh persian in india that urdu developed as a, a way for people to navigate between more sanskrit kinds of language and uh and uh persian in the uh in the military camps uh and, and so forth so um english hasn't changed that much for the last uh, 3 centuries uh Uh, We dropped the you know for 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 toe, for you, Uh, but it it hasn't changed that much. But it changed quite a lot with the Norman invasion. So I think what happened was that Iran, after the Arab conquest, was not conquered by large numbers of people uh, with whom you had to communicate. There were Turkic invasions. There were the Mongol invasions. The Mongols were probably very uh, thin on the ground. There weren't very many of them, and so they very quickly. Adopted Persian uh, when they were in Iran and and we think you know the Hazara people in Afghanistan are are the descendants of those Mongols uh, who adopted Persian Um, so uh, Another thing that fixes language uh, uh, Is is literature If you have classics in a language uh, and they're taught from generation to generation uh, That can help to fix the language Uh, and uh, so uh, of course, New Persian, the Persian that developed uh, in the 800s, 900s, uh, thousands of the Common Era, after the Arab conquests, um, produced a large amount of uh, very important literature. Uh, you have Attar, you have Rumi, you have so many important authors uh, that were then taught to each generation. I mean, all over the uh, the Middle East, and Central Asia, and South Asia, the uh, sort of the area. Uh, from, uh, from the Balkans to Bangladesh, um, young men, uh, young men primarily, although sometimes women as well, uh, w- w- were, were made to memorize Saadi uh, for, for a thousand years. I mean, that was what education was. Uh, and it's amusing that when the British uh, conquered India, one of the first things they did at, at, uh, um, uh, in Calcutta was to set up a school where the British administrators studied Saadi. Uh, So that helps to fix the language, too, when there are classics that everybody has to learn.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Cole, for that amazing presentation and answering our questions today. That was super interesting. I really learned so much from you today. And thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And don't forget to please make sure to buy Juan's new book. I also highly encourage you to please sign up to be a NIAC member today. Thank you so much, everyone, and happy summer solstice.